Lord, here we are. Would you speak? Would you minister to us? Would you achieve what you want to achieve in us today? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Sorry, I don't have the remote. <laughs> okay, thank you. Uh, okay, how many of you know what a McFlurry is? How many of you have eaten a McFlurry before? Uh, okay, we have a lot of healthy people. Uh, uh, for those of you who have, for some reason, never tried the McFlurry before, it's a dessert. Wait, wait, wait go back, go back, go back. Uh, it's a dessert that you can order from McDonald's, okay? And you know how they serve it, right? Uh, they serve, uh, next, uh, they serve it like this, okay? So there's, uh, this, this is a true story. Eh? The first time I ever ordered a McFlurry, I remember uh, it was in Sunway Pyramid. And that must have been 25 years ago or something like that. Okay, very long ago. Uh, and I, I, I ordered it, I, I received it, I tried to suck from this straw. Anyone else did that? Uh, okay. Uh, I tried to suck from this straw as hard as I could, but nothing was coming up. And so I thought that there must be some hard chocolate or something stuck at the bottom of the straw, obstructing the flow of the dessert. Then I lifted it up. And of course, you know, it's a spoon. It's not a straw. <laughs> right? Uh, the, the, the spoon is hollow. Uh, next slide. Uh, Press. Uh, the, the spoon is hollow because they stick into the machine and then it mixes for you. Okay, that's why there is a, 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 a hole in the spoon. So how am I supposed to know, right? I didn't see them make the McFlurry. I just received it. It looked like a big straw to me. So point, the whole point of this is that we can try and try to do something the wrong way and get absolutely nowhere until we discover how it actually works. So you can try to suck as hard as you can from a spoon. Nothing is going to happen until you use a spoon like you're supposed to use a spoon. And that is a, a picture of our big idea today. And that is that we live in God's kingdom on His terms, not ours. Okay, so this is the takeaway message if you forget everything. This is the thing to remember, this is the thing to take picture. We live in God's kingdom on His terms, not ours. Now we, left, we, we last left off our series in Matthew, uh, with Matthew chapter uh, 14, where I wasn't here, but uh, Dr. Ku took us uh, through the feeding of the 5,000. And from there, there are further teachings and miracles that teach about the importance of faith. In the middle of chapter 16, uh, after that, there is a significant point, quite an important part in the, the book of Matthew, where Peter declares Jesus is the Messiah. Okay, so remember that Matthew's gospel is written primarily to what kind of audience? Jewish, right? Uh, and it is mainly to prove that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah that they've been waiting for. And so this is a, a huge deal, okay, that, that Peter recognizes Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus then starts predicting his death. He continues to teach about the kingdom. 
and he leaves Galilee, he crosses the Jordan River to Judea. And that brings us to chapter 19, okay, where we are uh, today. In chapters 19 and 20, so these, these two chapters, there are a few occasions that teach a similar theme. And this is a theme that's already been raised by Jesus before. The idea of, you know how Jesus came preaching about the kingdom, right? That the kingdom of heaven has come near. Uh, and this is the idea that this kingdom of heaven, this kingdom of God, is an upside-down kingdom, right? That where God is king over the lives of the people who acknowledge him as king, it, is an, it, it doesn't work like how this world works. It is an upside-down kingdom. And so, all the way back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, with the Beatitudes already, this, this theme starts, Right, that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, upside down from this world. And so, next slide. The, the passage starts off with a false premise. Okay? Verse 16, uh, you, if you want to follow along, uh, you keep your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 19. So, verse 16, the passage starts off with this young man asking Jesus, what good thing must he do in order to get eternal life. And so his premise here is that doing good can earn him eternal life. And so at the very start, this is a false premise that you can do some sort of good thing in order to get eternal life. But before we get into that, we need to establish some, something. Now, the fact that this young man was rich is important, right? And not just because what Jesus asked him to do later, you know, sell your possessions and all that. The culture of that time labeled people, the moral worth of people, according to their possessions, their circumstances. Okay, so people back then, if you remember, there are some encounters that Jesus has with people who are blind, people who are lame, the disabled, the handicapped. Uh, back then, the, the, the disabled people were labelled as sinners because the, the people back then saw that these dis disabilities are like curses from God for their disobedience. Okay? So the, the people who were in a low position socially, uh, some sort of, you know, their, their life is not considered successful according to the world, they were labelled as sinners, right? And in the same way, there was an automatic assumption that rich people were righteous. Because if you disobey God, you are a sinner, then you are cursed. You obey God, uh, you are a righteous person, uh, you are blessed, right? And so there was this assumption that rich people, at least among the, the Jews, that rich people had earned God's blessing through righteous living. So that was the cultural perception of that day. And so this man is rich. And on top of that, he's not just you know, accumulated riches through his life to old age and you know, retirement and that sort of thing. He is young, meaning that people would have considered him to be extraordinarily blessed. Meaning, wow, this guy must be super righteous. Huh? He must be doing something right before God. Right? And so there was this perception. 
But Jesus had earlier set the standard for what was considered righteous enough to qualify for the kingdom of heaven. And so if we look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, uh, Jesus told, uh, told them that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so this is the standard that even the, the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who keep the law so stringently that unless your righteousness surpasses them, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. You won't get eternal life. And so in today's passage, we see this statement put to the test. So this rich young man starts a conversation with this false premise that you can earn eternal life by doing good things. And so he asks him, what good things must I do to get eternal life? And so Jesus follows his logic. He plays along. And then Jesus replies, basically, uh, he replies with, you keep the commandments. Which commandments? You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Uh, and you love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, you honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus replies, five of the ten commandments, one commandment from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. So he replies, the, the, this fellow is asking, what, must, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Jesus says, keep the commandments. Which ones? He gives him six commandments. Right? Why just six commandments? Will keeping those six commandments earn that man eternal life? Cannot be. We know that even under the law of Moses, they were considered righteous by how well they kept God's laws. Not just some of them, all of them. And we know that the, the, the Jewish people classified these laws, they, they basically counted them uh, and numbered them 613 laws in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, right? So why did Jesus stop at six commandments? Why didn't he list the 613 commandments given in the law of Moses? Although, of course, you know, he will be speaking for hours and hours. Lah. But I think, and some scholars also say, uh, that Jesus is probably making a point, right? As mentioned earlier, the commandment love your neighbor as yourself comes from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, which says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I'm the Lord. And so this young man says, I've kept all these commandments, including this one. Huh? And then he says, what do I still lack? And then Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, Go, sell your possessions, give to the poor. You have treasure in heaven, then come, follow me. Now, the Greek word for perfect, I think it's mentioned before, it means complete, right? That you are not lacking in anything. And so Jesus is saying, if you really want to completely keep the commandments, go sell your possessions, give to the poor, you have treasure in heaven, then come, follow me. Now, we tend to zoom straight to how the man's riches are in the way of him following Jesus, right? But it is possible that Jesus is making a point here, telling the young man, 
you say you love your neighbour like how you love yourself, then you give the value of your possessions to the poor. Lah. Just like how you have accumulated that value for yourself. You love your neighbour like you love yourself. You sell your possessions, you give to the poor just like how you have accumulated so much for yourself. So the fact that the man went away sad implies he wasn't going to do that. All right. Which means he was not actually able to keep this commandment of loving his neighbour like himself. He claimed he did, but he actually could not. And if he could not keep six commandments, how can he possibly keep 613 right, in order to earn eternal life? So after the rich young man leaves, Jesus tells, uh, teaches his disciples how difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom. And then he repeats the same point, only this time he talks about a camel going through the eye of a needle. Uh, there's been some, uh, some people try to, to uh, explain how there's a gate in Jerusalem called the eye of the needle, and then in order for a camel to go through, you need to unload all the baggage, and then only can go through, that kind of thing. But uh, recent scholars have basically said, uh, have determined that no such thing. <laughs> okay, that, that was a, a leg, sort of like a theological legend. So it is literally that the idea of a beast uh, bearing, uh, bird, no, a burden bearing beast, uh, the largest beast that can bear burdens, uh, going through the sm one of the smallest holes that you can see, Literally, it is impossible. That's the point. Now, in that sort of culture where material wealth was seen as God's favor, Jesus' reaction is uh, sorry, the reaction of Jesus' disciple is if it is impossible for this rich guy, this guy who has, by their perception, earned God's favor by keeping all his commandments if even he cannot get eternal life and enter the kingdom of heaven, then who on earth can be saved? And Jesus' reply is, with man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. In other words, without God, salvation is impossible to be earned. But with God, it can be gifted. We grew up in a transactional culture. We're very used to doing things or not doing things in order to earn rewards or avoid punishments, right? That is how we are raised. And the automatic assumption in most religions is that by doing things a certain way or living a certain way, you can earn something from that God or that religion. Uh, so it can be material things, it can be heaven, it can be enlightenment, but the expectation is that you do something in order to earn it. You do something enough in order to earn that thing. And perhaps that's why many of us get stuck on this whole idea of why good people suffer and why bad people prosper. Because according to how the world works, that is just unfair. Right? The transaction of being a good person should not result 
in bad things. The transaction of being a bad person should not result in good things. And so we get stuck on that. But God's kingdom doesn't work the same way that this world works. Now, it's not a chaotic kingdom uh, where we don't know what happens to the righteous or unrighteous. It's not random, okay? It's simply a kingdom that has a much longer runway than what we can see in this earthly life. It has a much wider, more eternal perspective than just this earthly life that we can see. It is a kingdom that takes into account things that are unseen but are of spiritual value. It is a kingdom that is dependent on God's grace instead of our merit. And so there's a reason why this passage continues into Matthew chapter 20, which talks about the parable of the workers in the vineyard. You're familiar with that parable, right? A landowner uh, promises to pay a certain amount to some workers when he hires them to work in his vineyard. And then as time passes, he hires more workers to do the same thing. At the end of the day, they all queue up to be paid. He pays them the same, same amount, all of them. And so the fellows who started work earlier, work longer than the fellows who started work later, they say, no fair, right? And the landowner reminds them, I promise you this much. Why you complain that I'm generous to those who don't deserve? Right? And so the point of that parable is that God is generous to those who don't deserve His generosity. And so those trying to earn eternal life by doing good will never be good enough. Romans 3.23 reminds us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all fall short of God's perfect standards of holiness. And if we were to try to earn eternal life, salvation, by doing good things, we would never do good enough. Our righteous acts are like filthy rags in comparison to the holiness of God. And that's why Jesus says, uh, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. And so he's referring to God, possibly referring to himself, the only one who is able to keep all these laws perfectly. And so this brings us to our next point that if we cannot work on the false premise that we can earn eternal life and we can earn salvation by doing good things, what is the true way? Next slide. And so if you look at verse 21 of Matthew chapter 19, uh, notice what Jesus says. Jesus says, if you want to be perfect or you want to be complete, go sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Notice he doesn't say sell your possessions, give to the poor, you will have eternal life. Right? He says, you will have treasures in heaven. So there is kingdom value to giving to the poor, loving our neighbours like we love ourselves, but that doesn't earn us eternal life. We don't earn our way, by doing, uh, our, earn our way into heaven by doing charity. The true answer to entering the kingdom of God is found in the second part of verse 21, where Jesus says, come, follow me. And so the call to follow Jesus is the call of discipleship. It is not the call to do something. 
It is the call to be a follower of Jesus. As we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, we've seen this call given to Jesus' disciples, right? And uh, we don't know all their professions, but of those whom we know, uh, we know that there were fishermen, we know that there was a tax collector, we know that there was a zealot, which is like a militant rebel, okay? And they all make the choice to give up their previous life, follow Jesus wherever he went. Now, this same call is given to the rich young man. He was not disqualified from this call of following Jesus. It wasn't that, oh, you're rich, you cannot follow me. No, the call is also given to this rich young man. But his response, instead of giving up his previous way of life and following Jesus, his response is to go away sad. And next slide. Scripture highlights the reason. It specifically says, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, it doesn't really matter whether Jesus uh, was telling him to sell his possessions just to make a point, or we understand that you know, he had to sell his possessions in order to follow Jesus. The point is that the man doesn't follow Jesus because he does not want to give up his great wealth. Wealth, for this man, had become an obstruction to following Jesus. Jesus highlights that it is difficult for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And he's already taught about the dangers of loving money uh, in his Sermon on the Mount. Next slide. Where he teaches, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one, love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This principle is repeated by Paul in his letter to Timothy, where he says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith, pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, it is not wrong to be rich or wealthy. Okay? So, those of you who have a healthier bank account than <laughs> uh, you know, mo most of us or many of us, uh, don't worry. Okay? It is not wrong to be rich or wealthy. It is not a sin. But riches can easily become an easy distraction or an easy obstruction to following Jesus. Why is that? One reason is because in this world and how this world works, riches, money, tends to give us access to power. It gives us access to what we want to do. So, for example, uh, no time to clean house. Use money, hire somebody, to clean your house, right? Want to get from here to Langkawi, cannot swim. How? Use money, buy a ticket, fly to Langkawi, right? So money gives you agency. Money gives you power. The more money you have, the more powerful you are. And that's why, you know, all those conspiracies are usually about the richest people in the world, right? That they are above laws and whatever. And so, Money tends to give us power. Money also tends to give us security. 
the people who feel the least safe, the least stable, are those who feel like they don't have enough money. And so when you have a healthy enough bank account for a rainy day, you know if your car breaks down, uh, okay, it can fix, right? Those who don't have enough money to fix their car, when the car breaks down, charm right? So money brings power, money brings security. And power and security are two things that can keep us very independent, meaning we don't need God. So the times when we, oh, okay, I speak for myself. The times when I have prayed the hardest to God, I remember uh, have been times when I have, you know, uh, basically not have had that power and that security. When I felt like I didn't have enough power, didn't have enough security, didn't have enough money, right? Those are the times that I pray the most to God and, you know, seek God the most, right? Naturally. And so when we depend on money more than God, we will also tend to pursue money more than God in order to you know, get more power, get more security. And that turns money into our idol. It turns it into the most important thing in our lives. When I first answered the call to be a pastor, I remember two conversations that I had uh, with extended family members. One was with an auntie and one was with a cousin. And my auntie told me, you know, oh, you're going to be a pastor. Such a waste to be a pastor. You have already gotten a degree in computer science. All that money that was spent on your degree down the drain. If you want to serve God, why don't you work hard, earn a lot of money, and give to the church? And when you retire, you have more time, you have more money, uh, then you become pastor. Uh, so that's what my auntie told me. My cousin told me, you know, being a pastor doesn't pay very well. He's right, huh? Uh, you, okay, I'm not asking for handouts, huh? No, 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 no. <laughs> but compared to, you know, many other professions. Okay, so my, my, my cousin told me, uh, being a pastor doesn't pay very well. You should do it part-time you can use the other part of your time, build a business, uh, do some investments so that you don't have to worry about money in the future. Uh, then you are free to focus on pastoral ministry. So yes, I could have followed any of their suggestions. But at that point in time, it was quite clear to me that God was calling me to give Him all my time uh, at that specific moment. Right? The, my, my best years of my 20s. I, I, okay. Anyway, the, the best years of my 20s. Now, I'm not sharing this to tell you, oh, see, I'm so quiet. Uh, <laughs> I, I made such a big sacrifice. My point is that we live in God's kingdom on His terms, not ours. Next slide. Just now, during the, the track report that Ehon presented, we saw the critical need for pastors in track. Uh, track is our English-speaking Methodist churches. And really critical. Um, the 13 pastors who are retiring is in the next two quadrennium, so in the next eight years. 
and then if we don't have new pastors coming in, we have 15 ordained pastors to take care of 44 churches. Charm law. <laughs> I am one of those 15. Pray for me. <laughs> I don't know if God is calling you. I don't know if God is calling your children. I don't know if God is calling your grandchildren to pastoral ministry. If he is, you may be hearing alternative suggestions from people like my auntie or my cousin, maybe even a voice from yourself. And if that's the case, I want to encourage you to live in God's kingdom on his terms, not yours, not anyone else's. Now, maybe it's not pastoral ministry. Maybe it's some area of full-time ministry. Maybe it's not even full-time ministry. Maybe it's even just giving up something so you can serve more in some much-needed area. Or maybe it's giving up something so you can pursue discipleship better by spending more time with God. Spending more time in His Word. Spending more time in prayer. Spending more time with His people. Whatever. Whatever it is, do it on His terms, not yours. Remember, anything worth pursuing will cost something. If it is not costly, most of the time it's not worth pursuing. But as much as we count the cost, we also reap the reward. In Matthew 19, uh, verses 28 to 29, Jesus gives three promises that would be fulfilled when he comes again at the end of the world as we know it, and he comes to judge you know, all of humanity. These promises are given to those who follow him. Firstly, they would sit on 12 thrones together with Christ on his glorious throne, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This is probably symbolic language uh, to mean that those who follow Jesus will be given a high position of honour above those being judged. Right? So in eternity, we'll be given a, a high position of honour. Uh, second promise for those who follow him are that they would receive in eternity things of far greater value, a hundred times greater, he says, than the things that they have given up in order to follow Him. So the sacrifices made in this life for the sake of following Jesus in eternity, you will receive a hundred times. Doesn't mean uh, you give up uh, you know, a house, you give up a brother, you give up a sister, you get hundred houses, hundred brothers, hundred sisters, right? Um, more than the, the things of this life are just 1% in value compared to you know, what we will receive in eternity. The third promise is that those who follow Him uh, would inherit eternal life. And that is what this rich young man was seeking. But they would inherit eternal life on God's terms by following Jesus no other way. And so in conclusion, we don't actually know how the story ends for this rich young man, did he end up selling everything and coming back to follow Jesus? We don't know. 
Did he end up continuing the same way of life, knowing that he was missing out on the greater treasure of God's kingdom? We don't know. His story is uncertain. But friends, your story is not over. For the rich young man, the price was his possessions. Your price may be different. It may be your possessions. It may be your comfort zone. It may be your me time. It may be your pride. Whatever the price may be, Jesus says, come, follow me. And so I'd like you to know that we live in God's kingdom on His terms, not ours. Don't insist on your way at His expense. I'd like you to be a follower of Jesus, not just a doer of good things, but a true follower of Jesus. He is the true way to eternal life. And do give up whatever is keeping you from answering His call to come and follow Anything worth pursuing costs something. Let us pray. I want to pray for those of you here today who may have never truly taken the step to follow Jesus in your heart. Or maybe you did, but you've gotten distracted with the things of this world and you've stopped following Him you want to come back to Him. If that's you, I want to pray for you right now. Lord, I commit my brother or sister who is before you now, acknowledging that they need you. They need you to forgive their sin. They want to repent from a life that has been led separately from you. Lord, would you grant them the assurance that all who seek you will find you and all who call on your name are saved. Teach them what it means to follow you as the Lord of their lives. Thank you, Jesus. I also want to pray for those of you here today who feel like you're holding back on God. Maybe you haven't been willing to pay the price to answer whatever He's calling you to, or maybe you're trying to bargain with Him on your terms. If that's you, I also want to pray for you. Let's pray. Lord, I bring to you those among us today who are struggling to obey. And we confess, Lord, that there are many distractions and obstructions in this world that keep us from readily following you wherever you want to lead us. I ask that your Holy Spirit would fill us and give us a kingdom perspective in every choice that we make that we might see beyond the temporary things of this world, that we might hold dear the things that you value in your kingdom. We pray this in the name of Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. Amen.